comes to us uh, from Mark 14, verses 1 through 11, as we are going through Mark's account of the gospel, introducing us to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to his crucifixion, and then uh, telling us the <laughs> consequences of that, uh, that crucifixion, how it changed the world, how it was for our benefit, and how it uh, is the great truth to be proclaimed to the world, not only that Jesus has died, but that Jesus is risen. But before we come to uh, this word of God given to us, let us go to the God who gave it, and let's ask for his help. O sovereign Lord, when we come to your worship, too often we're listless, we're not concentrating, we're disturbed by other things. Our minds go over the anxieties that we have, the tasks that are before us, the things that we have not done. We fret about our health, we think about all sorts of things. And Lord, often uh, we'll even be stirred up to, uh, <laughs> to animus, Lord, um, thinking of people who have done us wrong, Lord, or perceived slights, because we know, Lord, that the devil is going to use in these moments anything that he can to draw our attention away from what should be our focus, and that is your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to think on Christ, to think on his work now to read these things and understand the importance of them. That will only happen, Lord, if you illuminate us inwardly. I need your help as well, Lord. I am a feeble man with feet of clay, a sinner and the chief of sinners, and I need, Lord, uh, your wisdom. I won't be able to reach the hearts of these people. I can only reach their ears. But, Lord, I know you can change them inwardly, and I pray you would. Now, Lord, please. Help us all to understand, as only you can. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Be reading from Mark 14, 12 through 26. Your worship folder has uh, last week's um, reading in it, unfortunately. But uh, we'll be taking a look at Mark 14, 12 through 26, and considering what we learn from it. Hear now the word of God. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, as you know, Jesus and the disciples are now in Jerusalem, and the crucifixion is imminent. It's about to happen. But so is the Passover. And the Passover, of course, was the meal in which the Jews remembered how they had been slaves in Egypt, and the Lord had sent the angel of death to slay the firstborn child in every household in Egypt, but he had instructed his people, the Jews, to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their houses. And when the Lord had seen the blood of the sacrificial lambs on the doorposts of his people, he caused his angel to pass over those houses, not to afflict those families, instead of exacting the penalty of death. And they continued observing this feast at the Lord's command, not only as a memorial to the Lord's deliverance, but also as a reminder that the Lord was going to send, that he had promised to send his Messiah, who would be the true Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so as they sacrificed those Passover lambs, around the Passover, throughout Jerusalem, and they ate as families, they remembered that there was a lamb coming, a lamb who would be the ultimate sacrifice, the real sacrifice, the sacrifice in whose blood was the power to forgive sins and cause the angel of death to pass over them. And this should go without saying, but uh, the true value of a memorial is not in its size, its shape, its grandeur or its artistic value, but in what it memorializes, what it's supposed to remind us of. And I mention that because, of course, in these verses, Jesus is celebrating one of the great memorials of the Old Testament. He is celebrating the the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which was part of it. In the Old Testament, God's people were given a calendar, you remember, of memorial days to remind them of the various points of God's redemptive work in their history. The Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and so on. Uh, And keeping those feasts, though, wasn't easy. They were actually there. It was hard to uh, keep most of them. For instance, you had to go up to Jerusalem if the feast involved a sacrifice. It was the only place on earth. You could, for instance, slay the Passover lamb properly. And so if you lived in Alexandria in Virginia, that involved quite a journey. It was an even longer journey if you lived someplace like Rome. You had to go uh, quite some distance to get to the place where you would prepare uh, that meal. And so it was not just hard also in terms of travel. You had to get your sacrificial animal. You had to uh, have it sacrificed properly. You had to eat the memorial feast according to God's instructions. For instance, during the Passover meal, there were no less than four different cups of wine that were uh, to be uh, uh, drunk. But in, uh, and then also, of course, you, you had to get rid of certain things. They had to prepare by, uh, for the Passover by removing what from their households? Yeah, yeast, all sorts of yeast. And so they, uh, they had to get rid of that, and then they had to get in the required elements for that, the unleavened bread, the, uh, the lamb, and so on. Uh, but here in the midst of the last Passover, Jesus 
gives his followers a ceremony of eating bread and of drinking wine, something of far greater simplicity than any of the Old Testament feasts, something that could be celebrated not just in Jerusalem, but wherever the members of the church were gathered together to celebrate the work of Christ. And yet, this simple meal of bread and wine is the most important memorial in the Christian faith. This is the Lord's Supper, of course, and yet both of them, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, which uh, replaced it, ultimately pointed to the same thing. They both pointed to the promise that was at the core of the covenant of grace, that the Messiah would come and save his people from their sins. We went over the covenant of grace uh, in the men's meeting uh, last Thursday and how important it was uh, and how central that covenant was to the redemption of mankind. The covenant of grace, of course, began as soon as the covenant of works failed. That uh, covenant that God had uh, given to Adam, telling him that if he did not eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would inherit eternal life. By his obedience to God's commands, he would have inherited that eternal life and passed it down to his descendants, a.k.a. us. And yet he did not do that. He failed. But there was a covenant of grace that God had made, founded in the covenant of redemption between the members of the Godhead. The covenant of grace was that through a redeemer, the seed of the woman would come, that lamb, the man who was not merely a man, but the God-man who would take away the sins of the world, just as we were reading in terms of uh, the redemption that uh, Elder King reminded us of that is effectually applied to us when we come to faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 7, incidentally, spells out the relationship of the memorials and the covenant of grace uh, in, a, in a wonderful way. I think one of the best exp- short explanations, at least, uh, that's available. So I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in the back of your Red Trinity hymnals to page 852 of God's covenant with man. I want to read sections 5 and 6. And this is speaking of uh, the covenant of grace. I'll back up, actually, to, to section 4. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. This covenant, that is the covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, that is the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. Who saved people in the Old Testament? Jesus. Jesus, the same Jesus who was to come, was the Savior of the people in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus was able to say to the Jews, Uh, Your father Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. That's why Job was able to say, I know my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him in the flesh. Even after my flesh is destroyed, I will see him. How it was that Emmanuel, um, sorry, Isaiah was able to refer to Emmanuel, God with us, who would come, and so on. The prophets, the patriarchs, all of them, everyone justified by faith was justified by faith in that promise of God that he would send the Redeemer. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies pointed forward to. And that, incidentally, is why it was so terrible when they changed the worship of God 
and added things to it or took in the pagan stuff. It pointed them away from the Redeemer. It did not tell of God's work. It was not sufficient to build them up, but the things that God gave were. We go on to section 6, incidentally, in 852. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So here we have that transitional point where we move from Old Testament to New Testament definitively, where the Old Testament feasts are passing away. Now that the thing that they foreshadowed, the coming of Christ and his death, his crucifixion for our sins, is coming to pass. Jesus didn't have to give us a calendar of feast days that we might remember his completed work, uh, nor did he authorize us to create feast days. Yet he did give us some things of incredible value, memorials to remind us of what he did, sacraments that would be to us a means of grace, building us up in the faith and reminding us at the same time of his work of assurance and assuring, I mean redemption rather, and giving us assurance of our part in it. So as we come to the table, we remember Christ died for us. We partake of the bread and we remember his body which was given for us. We drink the wine and we remember his blood which washes away our sins. And as we come, we have that assurance that his work is sufficient. There is nothing that needs to be added to it. And that therefore we who believe will be saved even to the uttermost. And here he is giving that meal, the Lord's Supper. And then he gives his command, do this in remembrance of me. And for us as well, the true importance of this meal, this memorial, doesn't lie in the externals. It doesn't lie in the bread and the wine. But it lies in our heart connection to the one who is being memorialized the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't know him, if we don't depend upon him, then it's an empty sign. It's an empty memorial. It becomes meaningless to us. Therefore, we must have that connection to the Savior if we are to participate in it aright. Now, Passover, that was the feast, obviously, that the Lord's Supper replaced. It was one of the four feasts every male Jew was to observe. And so the disciples in this section, they know they're going to celebrate the Passover with their master. But where are they going to celebrate the Passover with their master? This was a, a family meal. Normally you would eat it with the members of your household, but they weren't from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. Where will they eat this meal? Well, Jesus knew that this would be the last meal he ate with his disciples before his crucifixion. So he had made arrangements secretly to eat at the home of a follower. And Jesus did this with good reason. He wanted to eat this meal with his disciples and not have Judas betray them at the meal. So they kept the location secret. Jesus was born to die in Jerusalem, and he knew that he was going to go to the cross, but he knew he was going to go at exactly the right time, the time that God had appointed, as it was actually the next day, Friday. So they go to this house at his instruction, and they eat the Passover together. Now, I know in verse 20 it says, he sat down with the twelve, uh, but this is a place where um, the ESV translation is actually slightly better. Well, actually, is it verse 20? No, it's not. 
I'm sorry, I've got it, uh, I've got it wrong. Now, as they sat and ate, sorry, verse 18. Um, in, the, uh, in the ESV, it points out he didn't sit. He actually reclined at the table with them. I know, um, unfortunately, many of you will have seen Leonardo da Vinci's uh, famous painting, The Last Supper. And there you have that, you know, the long table. Jesus is at the center. The disciples are at the sides. But that is all wrong. Uh, They were eating in the Greco-Roman world and and the Greco-Roman style, and you would eat uh, in that uh, style, reclining at table. Uh, They reclined on couches called a triclinia, which was arranged into a U-shape, with the principal couch being at the center of the U. And the most important members of the feast, obviously the most important member of of the feast would be at the center of the U. That would have been Jesus. And then the others would be bumped up against each other, so to speak, with the the two most important at his left and his right. In verse 21, though, or not in verse 21, I've got the uh, the verse wrong, uh, he makes this shocking announcement. He tells them, one of you is going to betray me. Now, this would have been something that, that... would naturally cause them to be troubled, to be exceedingly uh, upset. And it, it happens that they, they are upset. The reaction is immediate. We read uh, in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray uh, me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Exceeding sorrow. And I imagine, though, when he said, one of you is going to betray me, that one of the reactions at the table wasn't just merely exceeding sorrow. It was horror and terror. I imagine Judas's heart stopped at that moment. Oh, he knows. Oh, what's going to happen now? Is he going to, you know, get up? Or is he going to say, everybody get him or something like that? I mean, his experience would have said that that would not be the case. But nonetheless, it must have been a scary moment. But Jesus does not denounce him. Note that. The king, betrayed by his friend, does not call upon his followers to restrain him. John, who was at the feast, gives us greater detail. In John 13, and verse 23 onwards, we read this. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Anybody know who's that, who that is? John. That's the way he refers to himself. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Now, that's important. It's important that Judas left at that moment. Judas leaves the table. He leaves the communion of Christ's body. He leaves the assembly, the ecclesia. He leaves the church that Jesus was building, never to return to it. And he hurries away into the darkness. What is he really hurrying away to? Well, from his perspective, he's hurrying away to the priests to show them where Jesus would spend the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he is actually hurrying away to his death. Have you ever noticed that? This is an an aside, incidentally. The people who leave the church, who go out into the darkness, they think they're hurrying away for something better. 
I'm going out to the world now where I will gain all of the things that my heart desires. I'm leaving the church behind. Everything's going to be better now. But actually, they are hurrying off to their destruction. And if they don't repent and return, nothing good will happen. Nothing in an eternal sense. And unfortunately, as we know, I'm not giving anything away. I think Judas does not return. He's hurrying on to his death, but he is also hurrying on to eternal destruction and hell. And as we are told, it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. Divine predestination, brothers and sisters, does not remove human responsibility. Who was responsible for Judas's sin? Yes, his sin was foreordained. It was the means by which the crucifixion would come about, that which had to happen if we were to be redeemed. But who was responsible for Judas's sin? Not God, not even the devil. Ultimately, it was Judas himself. But after Judas goes, it is at that point he institutes the memorial. You or I looking at the cross would have probably been at this point in time filled with with self-pity, filled with anxiety. But our Lord, full of compassion for his followers, who is he thinking of? He is thinking of us. And instituted then at the end of the meal, he gives them this great blessing. I love the way that this this blessing came in the midst of table fellowship. I wish there was some way in the modern church, I've, I've never been able to think of a way to do it. I wish we could bring back that connection of the meal, the agape, directly to the Lord's Supper so that we could eat together as a church and then immediately transition into the Lord's Supper as we do so. But unfortunately, it's just uh, it's not possible to do it that way. So we have to separate the two. But nonetheless, the communion between disciples and Lord is emphasized. And Judas having left, we have the remaining people, the, uh, the believers there sitting at him, with him at the table. Now, note what is being commemorated. It is not his birth. It is not his miracles. Jesus gives no command to us to commemorate them. He specifically gives us the command, though, to commemorate his death. Do this in remembrance of me, in an ongoing way, on a regular basis. R.A. Bruce said this, very pithy. He said, by instituting a symbolic rite for such a purpose, Jesus, as it were, said to his disciples and to us, fix your eyes on Calvary and watch what happens there. That is the great event in my earthly history. Other men have monuments erected to them because they have lived lives deemed memorable. I wish you to erect a monument to me because I have died not forgetful of my life, indeed, yet specifically mindful of my death, commemorating it for its own sake, not merely for the sake of the life whereof it is the termination. The memory of other men is cherished by the celebration of their birthday anniversaries, but in my case, better is the day of my birth than the day, uh, sorry, the day of my death than the day of my birth for the purpose of a commemorative celebration. My birth into this world was marvelous and momentous, but still more marvelous and momentous is my exit out of it by crucifixion. Of my birth, no festive commemoration is needed. But of my death, keep alive the memory of the Holy Supper till I come again, remembering it well. You remember all my earthly history, for for of all it is the secret, the consummation, and the crown. That's R.A. Bruce pointing out how very important that death was and how it was worthy of memorial. Now, the Lord's Supper obviously has two parts. What are the two parts of the Lord's Supper? 
Bread and wine, those are the two elements. So the first thing that Jesus does is he takes the bread and then he does what? He breaks it, right. He breaks it with these words, this is my body. And unfortunately, while that is a wonderful declaration, it has been the cause throughout Christian history of all kinds of confusion, the worst of them being the doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, the idea that the bread literally becomes his body at that moment in time. And so the, the way the Catholics celebrate it is that what's happening at the Lord's Supper, which they call the Mass, is actually a re-sacrificing of Christ. That he is once again sacrificed in a bloodless ritual, but it is literally his body which is being served. And that contradicts the once-for-all nature of the crucifixion. It would not be true what Jesus said at the very end. What was his last word? It is finished to tell us die. If Jesus, though, was being re-sacrificed every time the Mass is celebrated, it is not finished, but it is finished. And were it the case that Jesus' literal body is being eaten and his literal, bread, uh, literal blood is being drunk, then wouldn't it make sense that he would start bleeding in front of them if they were really eating his body and his blood? But he didn't. Now, when he says, I am... Uh, that this uh, bread that they were eating was his body. He didn't literally mean that the bread had turned into his flesh any more than when he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, that at that point they should have assumed, okay, he's a plant at this point. Or when he said, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture, that they should have uh, you know, begun checking him for hinges. Because that is not what Jesus meant. It's obviously a metaphor. He was pointing out that his body was being sacrificed for them. And as they ate the bread, they were reaping or remembering the benefits of that sacrifice for them. And that his blood shed for them was symbolized in the wine. And therefore, as they drank, they remembered that the blood of Christ was given to wash away their sins. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no benefit from partaking in those things other than to be reminded. It is the case that when we, uh, we spiritually come to the table in faith, it's a blessing to us. We remember, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, to come to the table in an unworthy manner is a curse. It results in, in, he warns us of sickness and death. To come in an unbelieving fashion is wrong and, and sometimes even deadly. But to come in a believing fashion is to gain spiritual blessings on the other side. And so Jesus takes the Passover wine, uh, and as I, I, as I said, uh, there were four cups, if they were following the tradition of the rabbis. Um, we use Passover wine, incidentally, in our own celebration. And he institutes the Lord's Supper. He speaks then of the cup as the blood of the new covenant. Now here, he uh, is speaking of what um, Abraham had been reminded of. Uh, you remember that um, Hebrews 9.22 says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all of the bloody sacrifices in the Old Testament have pointed forward to the shedding of Jesus' blood. In Genesis 22, you remember Abraham had been taken up to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah actually became the physical location of where the temple was built, incidentally. And Abraham uh, said, my God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And they went together. Now, obviously, God told Abraham to stay his hand. 
not to sacrifice his son. But at the crucifixion, God's hand came down upon his own son as the sacrifice to take away our sins. He is the lamb that was going to be the sacrifice. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, we remember, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the blood of the new covenant. It's the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. Behold, the days, says Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jesus says now that prophecy of Jeremiah is being ushered in. This is the moment. And this, therefore, symbolized the sacrifice that he was about to make, the sacrifice that would free his followers from their sins. And then he tells them news that would have made them sad again. This is the last time he is going to eat with them. He will no more drink the fruit of the vine until the wedding supper of the Lamb. Until that day when you and I, brothers and sisters, eat and drink with Jesus in heaven. And that is why this is called the Last Supper. It is the first uh, Lord's Supper, but it's also the Last Supper that Jesus ate with his disciples. It marks this solemn farewell. There's going to be no more familiar eating and drinking together, no more meals for master and disciples, till that day when they eat and drink together with Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven. And then they sing this hymn, which was one of the uh, psalms of praise, uh, one of the Hallel psalms from uh, Psalms 113 to 118. Uh, Hallel, incidentally, means praise. From it, we get the uh, English word hallelujah, praise Yah. Um, Yah, literally short for Yahweh. So the Hallel songs were the praise God songs. So they sing them, and then they go out together. Now, A few short applications. First, and this one's obvious, Christians, we need memorials. We need reminders of what it is that God has done for us because we are a forgetful people. And the Lord's Supper is a wonderful memorial. When you come to it, I want you to think in your heart of what it means. Memorials are set up so that generations to come will not forget, in most cases, the sacrifices that were made on their behalf. We go to the World War II Memorial, but hopefully we don't go just to see, you know, the artistic arrangement of the various com- uh, columns and so on and read about the various places where the war was fought by American soldiers and sailors and airmen. But rather, I hope we go to remember the sacrifice that that generation made for us, that we would not have languished under fascism, a system that was no friend to the church. And so we go and we're reminded these men sacrificed for us. When you come to the table, it shouldn't simply be, I'm participating in a Christian tradition, or this is something my church does, or Christians do this, I'm not quite sure why, but rather it should be the case that you remember what it was that Jesus did for you, that you remember his once-for-all sacrifice. 
And it's so important that you remember that sacrifice and that you remember it was once for all and that it does take away your sins because otherwise, this side of heaven, what are we plagued by? We're plagued by the, the, the question, am I saved? I don't know of any Christian who has not at some point in his life woken up in the morning feeling unsaved or worse yet, gone to bed feeling unsaved, wondering, am I really part of God's covenant community? especially when they they look at their own sins, which is something the devil wants to point us to all the time. How can you possibly be a Christian the way you act? We say something horrible to somebody, and then we're driving away, and, and suddenly we're filled with shame and guilt. How could a Christian have said such a thing? We commit a sin, and we think to ourselves, at long last, is this, this the kind of thing that I do? Is this all? If I look to my own works, if I look to my own righteousness, and I contrast them with the perfect righteousness of God, I am going to do nothing but despair. You remember what happened to Isaiah? He comes in in Isaiah 6, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, surrounded by the angels, so glorious that they they have wings specifically designed to cover their faces so that they will not be blinded by his radiance and his beauty. And they call out, holy, 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 thrice holy, most holy, perfectly holy is the Lord God of hosts. And here Isaiah shuffles in, and if he'd compared himself to his people, he's doing pretty well in terms of holiness. But if he compares himself to this thrice holy, perfectly holy God, he's lost. And the words that that just tumble out of his mouth is, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. The words that I speak, I I can't be a prophet. I speak unwholesome, unholy words. And I live surrounded by people who speak unholy words. And so the Lord instructs an angel to take a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice and put it to his lips, thus telling him, your sin has been purged away by the sacrifice that will be made on your behalf. Literally, when you come to this table, that is what you should be reminded of, that your sin has been purged away by the sacrifice that was made on your behalf, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we need that memorial, because we are a people of unclean lips. And we would despair without that. What is then the Lord's Supper? This is a wonderful, wonderful, I'll leave you with this statement by Thomas Watson. He tells us, it is a visible sermon wherein Christ crucified is set before us, or it is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by receiving the holy elements of bread and wine, our communion with Christ is signified and sealed up to us. Or it is a sacrifice divinely instituted, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, Christ's death is showed forth, and the worthy receivers by faith are made partakers of his body and blood, and all the benefits flowing from thence. So I pray that when you come to the table and you look at those elements, you are reminded of your salvation. You are reminded of what Jesus came to do for you. You are reminded of that night where he sat with his disciples just prior to going to the cross. And he spelled out for them what he was about to do and the cost of it. And that you rejoice 
It is meant to be a, a meal of feasting. It's a meal of remembrance of a very sad event, but it is also a meal in which we rejoice at what God has done for us, the sacrifice that takes away our sin. I pray that's what happens when you look at that bread and you look at that wine. Or, and this may sound confusing at first, I pray that you look at it and you see there your need. You look at it and you recognize that if Christ had to die to take away my sin, then I can't be saved by my own righteousness. Then I need, I need what that meal symbolizes. I need his blood to cleanse away my sin. I need his body to be an atonement for my sins, the sacrifice that propitiates the anger of God and that therefore it causes you to flee to Christ. If your sin is so terrible that the only thing that could pay for it was the death of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, then how foolish are you to think, well, I don't really need to believe. I don't really need to come to Christ. What foolishness is that? This is a reminder that Jesus is the only way, the one way to heaven, and that only by faith in him, only by being amongst the people that he invites to his table as members of his family to partake of the covenant meal, that only that way may we be truly saved. And I pray that you would not let week after week go by without coming to the table, but that rather you would, you would go and you would speak to the elders and you would say, what does it take to become a Christian? What must I do to be saved? And knowing that, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be admitted to the table and have that means of assurance given to you. I pray that'll be the case. Let's go ahead and pray. God, our, our Father, I thank you so much for this family meal that you've given to us. This meal that shows us what it was that you had to do to, to save us. Lord, we thank you for the memorial. We need reminders, Lord. We know that. We're a people who forget so very easily. And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to rejoice when we come to the supper. I pray that you would cause us to feel assurance as we come to the supper. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to anticipate the wedding supper of the Lamb, that great feast that we will have when we, we are with you, when we sit and we see you face to face, surrounded by that multitude. May that day come soon. And so we pray with John, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray this in